Good morning, everyone. Across 1,300 years of history, we hear the words of the Northumbrian poet-monk Cadmon. It is right that we praise the King of Heaven, the Lord of hosts, and love him with all our hearts. For he is great in power, the source of all created things, the Lord Almighty. Never has he known beginning, neither does there come an end of his eternal glory. Ever in majesty he reigns over celestial thrones. In righteousness and strength he keeps the courts of heaven. Today is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Almighty God, Master of the Universe, loving Lord of our human existence, out of the flames of your creation your voice calls, marking us as your own. Yet there are times when we choose to ignore your voice and listen instead to our own needs and desires. Forgive us for those times when we have ignored the needs of others, when we have failed to place our feet upon your path. Loving Lord, in your forgiveness, you offer again your invitation to know your love, to to be loved, and to respond to your call. In hearing your voice, may we find our place within your creation. We gather in fellowship and friendship with praise on our lips, worship in our hearts, We bring our successes and our failures, our joys and our sorrows, our doubts and our certainties. We are ever conscious of just how fortunate we are compared to so many others through no virtue of our own. Compared to many other lands, we enjoy a very high level of well-being and security. And even in our own country, we are so aware of many whose lives are so much less privileged than ours. We bring our grateful thanks. As we move into our service, we ask that you will be with us. Open our eyes to the beauty of your holiness. Open our ears to the message of your word. Open our minds to the challenge of your truth. Open our hearts to the power of your love. Open our lives to the coming of your spirit, that we may truly worship you. We ask this. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. The first reading this morning is Psalm 93. God the King. The Lord is King. He's clothed with majesty and strength. The earth is set firmly in place and cannot be moved. Your throne, O Lord, has been been firm from the beginning, and you existed before time began. The ocean depths raise their voice, O Lord, they raise their voice and roar. The Lord rules supreme in heaven, greater than the roar of the ocean, more powerful than the waves of the sea. Your laws are eternal, Lord, and your temple is holy indeed, for ever and ever. And the second reading is Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 4b to 8. 
Grace and peace be yours from God, who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits in front of his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first to be raised from the death, and who is also the ruler of the kings of the world. He loves us, and by his death he has freed us from our sins, and made us a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To Jesus Christ with the glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming on the clouds. Everyone will see him, including those who pierced him. All people on earth will mourn over him. So shall it be. I am the first and the last, says the Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, and who is to come. John chapter 18, verses 33 to 37. Pilate went back into the palace and called Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus answered, Does this question come from you, or have others told you about me? Pilate replied, Do you think I am a Jew? It was your own people and the chief priest who handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus said, My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom belonged to this world, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. No, my kingdom does not belong here. So Pilate asked him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. I was born and came into the world for this one purpose, to speak about the truth. Whoever belongs to the truth listens to me. At the beginning of the 20th century, a British diplomat was posted to Sweden. And whilst he was there, he wrote a poem based on his family motto. The family was the Spring family, and the motto was, uh, my Latin is a rubbish, non mihi sed patriae. A century later, this poem has become an established feature in many national occasions, not least because in its rarely used three-verse form, it expresses something of the atrocity of the First World War. I'd never heard of the second verse until I did this research, and I don't have it here to share with you. But whether you love it or whether you hate it, it's a poem I suspect most people here will know well. And I think it gives us a helpful starting point for our reflections today. So I'm going to read you the first stanza. I vow to thee, my country, all earthly things above, entire and whole and perfect, the service of my love. The love that asks no questions, the love that stands the test, that lays upon the altar the dearest and the best. The love that never falters, the love that pays the price, the love that makes undaunted the final sacrifice. At the heart of this poem is a sense of national identity. The idea that my country demands my allegiance, even to the point of death. Now, this isn't the right time or place to discuss issues of Scottish national identity, or British national identity, or European, or African, or any other national identity. 
But the reality is, if we are honest with ourselves, that most, if not all of us, do self-identify with some geographical nation-state over and above all others. If that wasn't the case, we wouldn't have the shenanigans going on between the UK government and the Scottish government at the moment. It's all about how people self-identify. Well, at least partly about how people self-identify. And the same thing was clearly true in the time of Jesus. The Roman Empire extended over pretty much the entire known world. Allegiance to Caesar was a given. It was expected. And any any hint of insurrection or rebellion carried a death sentence. For first century Jews, this was desperately problematic because they understood themselves to be a nation in their own right. And they even continued to have their own monarchy, ruled by what we would refer to as a puppet king, or a series of puppet kings, in fact. Herod the Great, Herod Philip, Herod Antipas. Being Jewish trumped your allegiance to being part of the Roman Empire. Herod trumped Caesar, at least ideologically. And it was in this context that Jesus was arrested, accused of treason against Rome, and brought before Pilate, the Roman consul, to be uh, interviewed. Now, if we go with John's portrayal, Pilate is clearly fascinated by Jesus. And the idea that Jesus is some sort of self-styled ruler. Are you a king? He asks. In fact, are you the king of the Jews? Now, the response we heard have recorded by Jesus must have been infuriating for this powerful Roman. Because Jesus doesn't give him a straight answer, which is what he would be expecting. Actually, Jesus says, well... Whose idea was it to ask me this? Was it yours or somebody else's? Did you genuinely want to ask me this? Or has somebody else given you an idea that you're playing with? Do I care, says Pilate? Hey, it was your people that handed you over to me, so you must have done something to provoke them. Pilate is not remotely interested in internal Jewish squabbles. Who does or who does not claim to be their king is not of any interest to him because everybody is subject to Rome and under the rule of Caesar. And then Jesus makes the clincher. Yeah, I have got a kingdom, but it's not one that fits the categories you're using. Because if it did, then my armies would be fighting to free me from the grip of the Jewish authorities and probably to free me from Rome. My kingdom is something else altogether. So, are you a king? Pilate asks. Or, you are a king? Pilate says, depending how you choose to translate the Greek. So you say says Jesus, enigmatically as ever. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for Pilate? Really infuriating. 
And even though Pilate is intrigued by this Jesus, he's a loyal servant of Rome, and he cannot stand against a baying mob of Jews outside the door who are questioning his allegiance to Rome. For those who like chapter and verse, that's John 19, verse 12. If you don't do what we want, you know, friends of Caesar. And they declare their own allegiance to Caesar just a few verses on. So Pilate gives in. He signs the execution warrant. And then he decides what should be written on the indictment that's nailed onto the top of the cross. And he chose his words carefully. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. We're not going to explore this much today, um, but it's worth noting how quickly the Jewish authorities declare their allegiance to Rome when it suits their purposes. And perhaps it's worth asking ourselves how secure or otherwise our allegiances actually are when it's our own self-interest that's under threat. Is it really what suits us, what's best for us as people or families that controls where our allegiance lies? Jesus didn't say he was the king of the Jews, but he did suggest that he ruled another kingdom that was not geographically or racially defined. Now, because we have got the best part of 2,000 years of Christian history behind us, we know at least intellectually what he's referring to. And the language of the kingdom of God and the broadly synonymous kingdom of heaven trips easily from our lips. We speak easily and readily of Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And of course, today, we mark the Sunday known as Christ the King, which is why we have a candle lit. But how often do we actually stop and think what that means? What that actually might look like in reality? Jesus wasn't speaking about some remote, idyllic place to which the faithful would be transported to enjoy perpetual bliss. But something that operates in categories beyond anything that we might think of. We've heard three really short Bible readings this morning, but they give us some profound and powerful hints of what that kingdom is like. This other kingdom. Psalm 93 is one of the shortest in the Bible, and yet it makes very bold claims about the kingdom of God. Right from the very dawn of time, long before humans walked on the earth, never mind gathered together into tribes or nations, long before societal structures were conceived or established, God already reigned. And not just over Jerusalem, and not just over Israel, over everywhere and everything. Geographically speaking, we might say that the kingdom of God is coterminous with the universe. I like that word when I thought of it this week. The kingdom of God is the whole universe. Any boundaries we might define or recognize are transcended by the reign of God. And the reign of God is eternal. 
Chronologically speaking, it continues uninterrupted through the whole of time, past, present, and future. And so it's completely different from our human experience, in which boundaries are continually redrawn, in which nations and states appear and disappear, empires and federations rise and fall. If we try to apply any human category to the kingdom of God, it would fail. Because whatever category we could think of would be partial and finite. We can't take seriously the concept of the kingdom of God and still define ourselves primarily in terms of nationality or race or class or gender or education, or whatever it might be, because each and every one of those categories is subsumed by the kingdom of God. Or to put it another way, if we have the audacity to claim that our first allegiance is to Christ, then everything else comes second, including our nationality, our class, our race, our gender, our status, or whatever it might be. But it doesn't stop there. As we turn to the beginning of that bewildering book that is Revelation, having been reminded that Jesus is the ruler of the world, not Caesar, not any human leader, our own status within that kingdom is described as being priests. I wonder how that feels. Echoed elsewhere in the New Testament epistles, this concept, an expression of what we would call the priesthood of all believers, has to transform our thinking about our identity. Put in its simplest form, the role of a priest is to act as an intermediary between people and God. The Old Testament priests fulfilled this role through defined rituals especially those involving blood sacrifices. For Christians, Jesus is the ultimate priest and, mysteriously at the same time, the ultimate sacrifice, who inaugurated a new world order through his death on the cross. And so the kingdom of God seeps or creeps into the here and now. The eternal God beyond time, whose kingdom is everlasting, transforms the present experience of finite humans, an experience that God in Christ has had. God knows what it's like to be one of us. But here is a bigger and more amazing mystery. It is people like us who are the priests of this new kingdom, the go-betweens for a hurting world, and the God who in love created redeemed and sustains it, indeed continues to create, redeem and sustain it, and who will be creating, redeeming and sustaining it. It is us who are the bringers in or not of the kingdom of God, us who are the people called to spend our lives, if not as soldiers, then certainly as servants of Christ the King. It is people like us who are charged with being ambassadors and diplomats in a country that may may feel 
far away from the home of which we dream, the home that is the kingdom of God. So what does all that mean? Over the last few weeks, we've focused our thoughts through slogans such as love rules and humility rules. We've asked ourselves the question of what rules? A nice, ambiguous question handled brilliantly last week that forces us to ask both what exercises control over us and what are the laws, rules or codes of conduct that are helpful in shaping our lives. We have to take a bold step to move beyond glib assent to the words of the so-called golden rule that we should love God with our entire being and love others as we love ourselves and recognise our inability to live that out fully because we are frail and finite. We are sinful and we are sinned against. We've grappled with the challenge of true humility, an attitude that sees us firmly rooted in reality and we're aware of the complex social and political contexts in which we live that we are shaped by and which shape our attitudes. We've been challenged to move beyond simplistic and false interpretation of natural phenomena that may seem like the end of the world, literal or metaphorical, but actually not. And these are some of the attributes that must inform our priesthood, our service of Christ the King. People who are first and foremost completely and wholeheartedly committed to the service of Christ. People whose hearts and minds are so transformed that we are driven by a genuine love for a hurting and hurt world in all its complexity and all its diversity. People who recognise all humanly created boundaries for what they are and challenge them or even ignore them whenever or wherever they impede the progress of Christ's kingdom. People who will live with the frustrating, exciting, bewildering, challenging, now and not yet, of kingdom living as servants of the eternal king. Cecil Spring Rice caught a glimpse of what this means as he undertook his own exploration of national loyalty and Christian commitment a century ago. And so it's perhaps fitting to allow his words to conclude our own necessarily tentative and preliminary explorations today. And there's another country I've heard of long ago, most dear to them that love her, most great to them that know. We may not count her armies. We may not see her king. Her fortress is a faithful heart. Her pride is suffering. And soul by soul and silently, her shining bounds increase. And her ways are ways of gentleness. And all her paths are peace. May our devotion to Christ grow ever deeper as we work with the Spirit's help to bring to fulfilment the vision of hope that is God's kingdom. 
Amen. Let us pray. Sovereign God, of whose kingdom we now see only a glimpse, we bring you prayers for our world, for our church, and for ourselves. We do so in the knowledge that our understanding of life is incomplete, perhaps prejudiced, and often flawed. In the quietness, we bring to you those who today are captives to fear in our world, in this place, and in our hearts. In your kingdom of the now and not yet, may they, may we, be captivated instead by a divine, protecting love. We bring to you today those who toil under the burden of sadness and grief in our world, in this place, and in our hearts. In your kingdom of the now and not yet, may they, may we, find instead joyful strength and encompassing comfort. We bring to you those who hold power and prestige in our world, in this place, and in our hearts. In your kingdom of the now and not yet, may they, may we, as we reach beyond ourselves, also hold humility in the other hand. We bring to you those who consider themselves too old or too young to be truly seen or heard. In your kingdom of the now and not yet, may they continue to speak peace, and through them may we see God. In the name of the child who was and is King of Kings. Amen. Joyful God, loving God, giving God. We thank you that Christ is indeed King. That though we may not always see how it can be, that everything is in your hands and in your care. And so as we go from here, may we be inspired to live the kingdom now, to love, to say please, to say thank you to tell people about you, for we ask it in Christ's name.